0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. CHAPTER Three Sympathetic Magic. Part One The Principles of Magic. If we analyse the principles of thought on which magic is based, they will probably be found to resolve themselves into two: first, that like produces like, or that an effect resembles its cause. And second, that things which have once been in contact with each other continue to act on each other at a distance after the physical contact has been severed. The former principle may be called the law of similarity, the latter the law of contact or contagion. From the first of these principles, namely the law of similarity, the magician infers that he can produce any effect he desires merely by imitating it. From the second, he infers that whatever he does to a material object will affect equally the person with whom the object was once in contact, whether it formed part of his body or not. Charms based on the law of similarity may be called homeopathic or imitative magic. Charms based on the law of contact or contagion may be called contagious magic. To denote the first of these branches of magic the term homeopathic is perhaps preferable, for the alternative term, imitative or mimetic, suggests, if it does not imply, a conscious agent who imitates, thereby limiting the scope of magic too narrowly. For the same principles which the magician applies in the practice of his art are implicitly believed by him to regulate the operations of inanimate nature. In other words, he tacitly assumes that the laws of similarity and contact are of universal application and are not limited to human actions. In short, magic is a spurious system of natural law as well as a fallacious guide of conduct. It is a false science, as well as an abortive art. Regarded as a system of natural law, that is, as a statement of the rules which determine the sequence of events throughout the world, it may be called theoretical magic. Regarded as a set of precepts which human beings observe in order to compass their ends, it may be called practical magic. At the same time, it is to be borne in mind that the primitive magician knows magic only on its practical side. He never analyzes the mental processes on which his practice is based, never reflects on the abstract principles involved in his actions. With him, as with the vast majority of men, logic is implicit, not explicit. He reasons just as he digests his food in complete ignorance of the intellectual and physiological processes which are essential to the one operation and to the other. In short, to him, magic is always an art, never a science. The very idea of science is lacking in his undeveloped mind. It is for the philosophic student to trace the train of thought which underlies the magician's practice to draw out the few simple threads of which the tangled skein is composed, to disengage the abstract principles from their concrete applications, in short, to discern the spurious science behind the bastard art. If my analysis of the magician's logic is correct, its two great principles turn out to be merely two different misapplications of the association of ideas. Homeopathic magic is founded on the association of ideas by similarity. Contagious magic is founded on the association of ideas by contiguity. Homeopathic magic commits the mistake of assuming that things which resemble each other are the same. Contagious magic commits the mistake of assuming that things which have once been in contact with each other are always in contact but in practice the two branches are often combined or, to be more exact, while homeopathic or imitative magic may be practiced by itself contagious magic will generally be found to involve an application of the homeopathic or imitative principle. Thus generally stated the two things may be a little difficult to grasp but they will readily become intelligible when they are illustrated by particular examples. Both trains of thought are in fact extremely simple and elementary. It could hardly be otherwise, since they are familiar in the concrete, though certainly not in the abstract, to the crude intelligence not only of the savage, but of ignorant and dull-witted people everywhere. Both branches of magic, the homeopathic and the contagious, may conveniently be comprehended under the general name of sympathetic magic since both assume that things act on each other at a distance through a secret sympathy, the impulse being transmitted from one to the other by means of what we may conceive as a kind of invisible ether, not unlike that which is postulated by modern science for a precisely similar purpose, namely to explain how things can physically affect each other through a space which appears to be empty. It may be convenient to tabulate as follows the branches of magic according to the laws of thought which underlie them. Under the heading of sympathetic magic, or the law of sympathy, there is a left branch homeopathic magic, or the law of similarity, and a right branch contagious magic, or the law of contact. I will now illustrate these two great branches of sympathetic magic by examples beginning with homeopathic magic. Part 2. First Part. Homeopathic or imitative magic. Perhaps the most familiar application of the principle that like produces like is the attempt which has been made by many peoples in many ages to injure or destroy an enemy by injuring or destroying an image of him, in the belief that just as the image suffers, so does the man and that when it perishes he must die a few instances out of many may be given to prove at once the wide diffusion of the practice over the world and its remarkable persistence through the ages for thousands of years ago it was known to the sorcerers of ancient india babylon and egypt as well as of greece and rome and at this day it is still resorted to by cunning and malignant savages in australia africa and Scotland. Thus the North American Indians, we are told, believe that by drawing the figure of a person in sand, ashes, or clay, or by considering any object as his body, and then pricking it with a sharp stick, or doing it any other injury, they inflict a corresponding injury on the person represented. For example, when an Ojibwe Indian desires to work evil on anyone, he makes a little wooden image of his enemy, and runs a needle into its head or heart, or he shoots an arrow into it, believing that wherever the needle pierces, or the arrow strikes the image, his foe will the same instant be seized with a sharp pain in the corresponding part of his body. But if he intends to kill the person outright, he burns or buries the puppet, uttering certain magic words as he does so. The Peruvian Indians molded images of fat, mixed with grain, to imitate the persons whom they disliked or feared, and then burnt the effigy on the road where the intended victim was to pass. This they called burning his soul. A Malay charm of the same sort is as follows. Take pairings of nails, hair, eyebrows, spittle, and so forth of your intended victim, enough to represent every part of his person, then make them up into his likeness with wax from a deserted bees-comb. Scorch the figure slowly by holding it over a lamp every night for seven nights, and say, It is not the wax that I am scorching, it is the liver, heart and spleen of so-and-so that I scorch. After the seventh time, burn the figure, and your victim will die. This charm obviously combines the principles of homeopathic and contagious magic since the image which is made in the likeness of an enemy contains things which once were in contact with him, namely his nails, hair and spittle. Another form of the Malay charm, which resembles the Ojibwe practice still more closely, is to make a corpse of wax from an empty bees comb and of the length of a footstep. Then pierce the eye of the image and your enemy is blind. Pierce the stomach and he is sick. Pierce the head and his head aches pierce the breast, and his breast will suffer. If you would kill him outright, transfix the image from the head downwards, enshroud it as you would a corpse, pray over it as if you were praying over the dead, then bury it in the middle of a path where your victim will be sure to step over it. In order that his blood may not be on your head, you should say, It is not I who am burying him, it is Gabriel who is burying him. Thus, the guilt of the murder will be laid on the shoulders of the archangel Gabriel, who is a great deal better able to bear it than you are. If homeopathic or imitative magic, working by means of images, has commonly been practised for the spiteful purpose of putting obnoxious people out of the world, it has also, though far more rarely, been employed with a benevolent intention of helping others into it. In other words it has been used to facilitate childbirth and to procure offspring for barren women thus among the batacks of sumatra a barren woman who would become a mother will make a wooden image of a child and hold it in her lap believing that this will lead to the fulfilment of her wish in the babar archipelago when a woman desires to have a child she invites a man who is himself the father of a large family to pray on her behalf to Upulero. THE SPIRIT OF THE SUN. A doll is made of red cotton, which the woman clasps in her arms as if she would suckle it. Then the father of many children takes a fowl and holds it by the legs to the woman's head, saying, O upulero, make use of the fowl. Let it fall. Let descend a child, I beseech you. I entreat you. Let a child fall and descend into my hands and on my lap. Then he asks the woman, Has the child come? and she answers, Yes, it is sucking already. After that the man holds the fowl on the husband's head and mumbles some form of words. Lastly the bird is killed and laid together with some beetle on the domestic place of sacrifice. When the ceremony is over, word goes about in the village that the woman has been brought to bed, and her friends come and congratulate her. Here the pretense that a child has been born is a purely magical rite designed to secure, by means of imitation or mimicry, that a child really shall be born. But an attempt is made to add to the efficacy of the rite by means of prayer and sacrifice. To put it otherwise, magic is here blent with and reinforced by religion. Among some of the dyaks of Borneo, when a woman is in hard labour, a wizard is called in, who essays to facilitate the delivery in a rational manner by manipulating the body of the sufferer. Meantime, another wizard outside the room exerts himself to attain the same end by means which we should regard as wholly irrational. He in fact pretends to be the expectant mother. A large stone attached to his stomach by a cloth wrapped round his body represents the child in the womb and following the directions shouted to him by his colleague on the real scene of operations, he moves this make-believe baby about on his body in exact imitation of the movements of the real baby till the infant is born. The same principle of make-believe so dear to children has led other peoples to employ a simulation of birth as a form of adoption and even as a mode of restoring a supposed dead person to life if you pretend to give birth to a boy or even to a great bearded man who has not a drop of your blood in his veins then in the eyes of primitive law and philosophy that boy or man is really your son to all intents and purposes thus diodorus tells us that when zeus persuaded his jealous wife Hera to adopt hercules the goddess got into bed and clasping the burly hero to her bosom pushed him through her robes and let him fall to the ground in imitation of a real birth. And the historian adds that in his own day the same mode of adopting children was practised by the barbarians. At the present time it is said to be still in use in Bulgaria and among the Bosnian Turks. A woman will take a boy whom she intends to adopt and push or pull him through her clothes. Ever afterwards he is regarded as her very son, and inherits the whole property of his adoptive parents. Among the Berawans of Sarawak, when a woman desires to adopt a grown-up man or woman, a great many people assemble and have a feast. The adopting mother, seated in public on a raised and covered seat, allows the adopted person to crawl from behind between her legs. As soon as he appears in front, he is stroked with the sweet-scented blossoms of the Areca palm, and tied to the woman then the adopting mother and the adopted son or daughter thus bound together waddle to the end of the house and back again in front of all the spectators the tie established between the two by this graphic imitation of childbirth is very strict an offence committed against an adopted child is reckoned more heinous than one committed against a real child In ancient Greece, any man who had been supposed erroneously to be dead, and for whom in his absence funeral rites had been performed, was treated as dead to society till he had gone through the form of being born again. He was passed through a woman's lap, then washed, dressed in swaddling clothes, and put out to nurse. Not until this ceremony had been punctually performed might he mix freely with living folk. In ancient India under similar circumstances, the supposed dead man had to pass the first night after his return in a tub filled with a mixture of fat and water. There he sat with doubled-up fists and without uttering a syllable like a child in the womb, while over him were performed all the sacraments that were wont to be celebrated over a pregnant woman. Next morning he got up out of the tub and went through once more all the other sacraments he had formerly partaken of From his youth up. In particular, he married a wife or espoused his old one over again with due solemnity. Another beneficent use of homeopathic magic is to heal or prevent sickness. The ancient Hindus performed an elaborate ceremony based on homeopathic magic for the cure of jaundice. Its main drift was to banish the yellow colour to yellow creatures and yellow things such as the sun, to which it properly belongs and to procure for the patient a healthy red colour from a living vigorous source namely a red bull with this intention a priest recited the following spell up to the sun shall go thy heartache and thy jaundice in the colour of the red bull do we envelop thee we envelop thee in red tints unto long life may this person go unscathed and be free of yellow colour THE COWS, WHOSE DIVINITY IS ROHINI, THEY WHO, MOREOVER, ARE THEMSELVES RED, ROHINI, IN THEIR EVERY FORM AND EVERY STRENGTH WE DO ENVELOP THEE. INTO THE PARROTS, INTO THE THRUSH, DO WE PUT THY JAUNDICE, AND FURTHERMORE, UNTO THE YELLOW wagtail, DO WE PUT THY JAUNDICE. WHILE HE UTTERED THESE WORDS, THE PRIEST, IN ORDER TO INFUSE THE ROSY HUE OF HEALTH INTO THE SALLOW PATIENT, GAVE HIM WATER TO SIP, WHICH WAS MIXED WITH THE HAIR OF A RED BULL he poured water over the animal's back, and made the sick man drink it. He seated him on the skin of a red bull, and tied a piece of the skin to him. Then, in order to improve his colour by thoroughly eradicating the yellow taint, he proceeded thus. He first daubed him from head to foot with a yellow porridge made of turmeric or curcuma, a yellow plant, set him on a bed, tied three yellow birds to wit a parrot a thrush and a yellow wagtail by means of a yellow string to the foot of the bed then pouring water over the patient he washed off the yellow porridge and with it no doubt the jaundice from him to the birds after that by way of giving a final bloom to his complexion he took some hairs of a red bull wrapped them in gold leaf and glued them to the patient's skin the ancients held that if a person suffering from jaundice looked sharply at a stone curlew and the bird looked steadily at him he was cured of the disease such is the nature says plutarch and such the temperament of the creature that it draws out and receives the malady which issues like a stream through the eyesight so well recognised among bird fanciers was this valuable property of the stone curlew that when they had one of these birds for sale, they kept it carefully covered, lest a jaundiced person should look at it and be cured for nothing. The virtue of the bird lay not in its colour, but in its large golden eye, which naturally drew out the yellow jaundice. Pliny tells of another, or perhaps the same bird, to which the Greeks gave their name for jaundice, because if a jaundiced man saw it, the disease left him and slew the bird. He mentions also a stone, which was supposed to cure jaundice, because its hue resembled that of a jaundiced skin. One of the great merits of homeopathic magic is that it enables the cure to be performed on the person of the doctor instead of on that of his victim, who is thus relieved of all trouble and inconvenience, while he sees his medical man writhe in anguish before him. For example, The peasants of Perche, in France, labour under the impression that a prolonged fit of vomiting is brought about by the patient's stomach becoming unhooked, as they call it, and so falling down. Accordingly, a practitioner is called in to restore the organ to its proper place. After hearing the symptoms, he at once throws himself into the most horrible contortions for the purpose of unhooking his own stomach. Having succeeded in the effort, he next hooks it up again in another series of contortions and grimaces, while the patient experiences a corresponding relief. Fee, five francs. In like manner, a dyak medicine man, who has been fetched in a case of illness, will lie down and pretend to be dead. He is accordingly treated like a corpse, is bound up in mats, taken out of the house, and deposited on the ground. After about an hour, the other medicine men loose the pretended dead man and bring him to life, and as he recovers the sick person is supposed to recover too. A cure for a tumour, based on the principle of homeopathic magic, is prescribed by Marcellus of Bordeaux, court physician to Theodosius I, in his curious work on medicine. It is as follows. Take a root of vervain, cut it across, and hang one end of it round the patient's neck. And the other in the smoke of the fire. As the vervain dries up in the smoke, so the tumour will also dry up and disappear. If the patient should afterwards prove ungrateful to the good physician, the man of skill can avenge himself very easily by throwing the vervain into water, for as the root absorbs the moisture once more, the tumour will return. The same sapient writer recommends you, if you are troubled with pimples, to watch for a falling star and then instantly, while the star is still shooting from the sky, to wipe the pimples with a cloth or anything that comes to hand. Just as the star falls from the sky, so the pimples will fall from your body. Only you must be very careful not to wipe them with your bare hand, or the pimples will be transferred to it further homeopathic and in general sympathetic magic plays a great part in the measures taken by the rude hunter or fisherman to secure an abundant supply of food on the principle that like produces like many things are done by him and his friends in deliberate imitation of the result which he seeks to attain and, on the other hand, many things are scrupulously avoided, because they bear some more or less fanciful resemblance to others, which would really be disastrous. Nowhere is the theory of sympathetic magic more systematically carried into practice for the maintenance of the food supply than in the barren regions of Central Australia. Here the tribes are divided into a number of totem clans, each of which is charged with the duty of multiplying their totem for the good of the community by means of magic or ceremonies. Most of the totems are edible animals and plants, and the general result supposed to be accomplished by these ceremonies is that of supplying the tribe with food and other necessaries. Often the rites consist of an imitation of the effect which the people desire to produce in other words their magic is homeopathic or imitative thus among the waramunga the headman of the white cockatoo totem seeks to multiply white cockatoos by holding an effigy of the bird and mimicking its harsh cry among the arunta the men of the witchetty grub totem perform ceremonies for multiplying the grub which the other members of the tribe use as food One of the ceremonies is a pantomime representing the fully developed insect in the act of emerging from the chrysalis. A long, narrow structure of branches is set up to imitate the chrysalis case of the grub. In this structure, a number of men, who have the grub for their totem, sit and sing of the creature in its various stages. Then they shuffle out of it in a squatting posture, and as they do so, they sing of the insect emerging from the chrysalis. This is supposed to multiply the numbers of the grubs. Again, in order to multiply emus, which are an important article of food, the men of the emu totem paint on the ground the sacred design of their totem, especially the parts of the emu which they like best to eat, namely the fat and the eggs. Round this painting the men sit and sing. Afterwards, performers, wearing headdresses to represent the long neck and small head of the emu, mimic the appearance of the bird as it stands aimlessly peering about in all directions. The Indians of British Columbia live largely upon the fish which abound in their seas and rivers. If the fish do not come in due season, and the Indians are hungry, A Nootka wizard will make an image of a swimming fish and put it into the water in the direction from which the fish generally appear. This ceremony, accompanied by a prayer to the fish to come, will cause them to arrive at once. The islanders of the Torres Straits use models of dugong and turtles to charm dugong and turtle to their destruction. The Torajas of central Salibis Believe that things of the same sort attract each other by means of their indwelling spirits or vital ether. Hence they hang up the jawbones of deer and wild pigs in their houses, in order that the spirits which animate these bones may draw the living creatures of the same kind into the path of the hunter. In the island of Neas, when a wild pig has fallen into the pit prepared for it, the animal is taken out and its back is rubbed with nine fallen leaves, in the belief that this will make nine more wild pigs fall into the pit, just as the nine leaves fell from the tree. In the East Indian Islands of Saparoea, Haroecoe, and Noesalaut, when a fisherman is about to set a trap for fish in the sea, he looks out for a tree, of which the fruit has been much pecked at by birds from such a tree he cuts a stout branch and makes of it the principal post in his fish-trap for he believes that just as the tree lured many birds to its fruit so the branch cut from that tree will lure many fish to the trap the western tribes of british new guinea employ a charm to aid the hunter in spearing dugong or turtle a small beetle which haunts coconut trees "'is placed in the hole of the spear-haft "'into which the spearhead fits. "'This is supposed to make the spearhead "'stick fast in the dugong or turtle, "'just as the beetle sticks fast to a man's skin "'when it bites him. "'When a Cambodian hunter "'has set his nets and taken nothing, "'he strips himself naked, "'goes some way off, "'then strolls up to the net "'as if he did not see it, "'lets himself be caught in it, "'and cries, "'Hello, what's this? "'I'm afraid I'm caught!' After that, the net is sure to catch game. A pantomime of the same sort has been acted within living memory in our Scottish highlands. The Reverend James MacDonald, now of Ray, in Caithness, tells us that in his boyhood, when he was fishing with companions about Loch Aline, and they had had no bites for a long time, they used to make a pretense of throwing one of their fellows overboard and hauling him out of the water, as if he were a fish after that the trout or silich would begin to nibble according as the boat was on fresh or salt water before a carrier indian goes out to snare martins he sleeps by himself for about ten nights beside the fire with a little stick pressed down on his neck this naturally causes the fall stick of his trap to drop down on the neck of the martin among the gallelarese who inhabit a district in the northern part of halmahera a large island to the west of new guinea it is a maxim that when you are loading your gun to go out shooting you should always put the bullet in your mouth before you insert it in the gun for by so doing you practically eat the game that is to be hit by the bullet which therefore cannot possibly miss the mark a malay who has baited a trap for crocodiles and is awaiting results is careful in eating his curry always to begin by swallowing three lumps of rice successively for this helps the bait to slide more easily down the crocodile's throat he is equally scrupulous not to take any bones out of his curry for if he did it seems clear that the sharp pointed stick on which the bait is skewered would similarly work itself loose and the crocodile would get off with the bait hence in these circumstances it is prudent for the hunter before he begins his meal to get somebody else to take the bones out of his curry Otherwise he may at any moment have to choose between swallowing a bone and losing the crocodile. This last rule is an instance of the things which the hunter abstains from doing, lest, on the principle that like produces like, they should spoil his luck. For it is to be observed that the system of sympathetic magic is not merely composed of positive precepts. It comprises a very large number of negative precepts, that is, prohibitions. It tells you not merely what to do, but also what to leave undone. The positive precepts are charms, the negative precepts are taboos. In fact, the whole doctrine of taboo, or at all events a large part of it, would seem to be only a special application of sympathetic magic, with its two great laws of similarity and contact. Though these laws are certainly not formulated in so many words, nor even conceived in the abstract by the savage, are nevertheless implicitly believed by him to regulate the course of nature quite independently of human will. He thinks that if he acts in a certain way, certain consequences will inevitably follow in virtue of one or other of these laws, and if the consequences of a particular act appear to him likely to prove disagreeable or dangerous, he is naturally careful not to act in that way, lest he should incur them. In other words, he abstains from doing that which, in accordance with his mistaken notions of cause and effect, he falsely believes would injure him. In short, he subjects himself to a taboo. Thus taboo is so far a negative application of practical magic. Positive magic, or sorcery, says, do this in order that so-and-so may happen. Negative magic, or taboo, says, do not do this lest so-and-so should happen. The aim of positive magic, or sorcery, is to produce a desired event. The aim of negative magic, or taboo, is to avoid an undesirable one. But both consequences, the desirable and the undesirable, are supposed to be brought about in accordance with the laws of similarity and contact. And just as the desired consequence is not really effected by the observance of a magical ceremony, so the dreaded consequence does not really result from the violation of a taboo. If the supposed evil necessarily followed a breach of taboo, the taboo would not be a taboo, but a precept of morality or common sense. It is not a taboo to say, do not put your hands in the fire, it is a rule of common sense, because the forbidden action entails a real, not an imaginary evil. In short, those negative precepts which we call taboo, are just as vain and futile as those positive precepts which we call sorcery. The two things are merely opposite sides or poles of one great, disastrous fallacy, a mistaken conception of the association of ideas. Of that fallacy, sorcery is the positive, and taboo the negative, pole. If we give the general name of magic to the whole erroneous system, both theoretical and practical, then taboo may be defined as the negative side of practical magic. To put this in tabular form, if magic be a general heading, then theoretical, or magic as a pseudoscience, forms a left branch, and practical, or magic as a pseudo-art, forms a right branch. Under this right branch appear positive magic, or sorcery, and negative magic, or taboo. I have made these remarks on taboo and its relations to magic, because I am about to give some instances of taboos observed by hunters, fishermen, and others, and I wish to show that they fall under the head of sympathetic magic, being only particular applications of that general theory. Thus, amongst the Eskimo, boys are forbidden to play cat's cradle, because, if they did so, their fingers might in later life become entangled in the harpoon-line." Here the taboo is obviously an application of the law of similarity, which is the basis of homeopathic magic. As the child's fingers are entangled by the string in playing cat's cradle, so they will be entangled by the harpoon-line when he is a man and hunts whales. Again, among the huzuls of the Carpathian mountains, the wife of a hunter may not spin while her husband is hunting, or the game will turn and wind like the spindle and the hunter will be unable to hit it. Here again the taboo is clearly derived from the law of similarity. So too in most parts of ancient Italy, women were forbidden by law to spin on the high roads as they walked, or even to carry their spindles openly, because any such action was believed to injure the crops. Probably the notion was that the twirling of the spindle would twirl the corn stalks and prevent them from growing straight. So, too, among the Ainus of Sakhalin, a pregnant woman may not spin nor twist ropes for two months before her delivery, because they think that if she did so, the child's guts might be entangled like the thread. For a like reason, in Bilaspur, a district of India, when the chief men of a village meet in council, no one present should twirl a spindle, for they think that if such a thing were to happen, the discussion, like the spindle, would move in a circle "'and never be wound up. "'In some of the East Indian Islands "'anyone who comes to the house of a hunter "'must walk straight in. "'He may not loiter at the door, "'for were he to do so, "'the game would in like manner "'stop in front of the hunter's snares "'and then turn back, "'instead of being caught in the trap. "'For a similar reason, "'it is a rule with the Torajas of central Celebes "'that no one may stand or loiter "'on the ladder of a house "'where there is a pregnant woman.' for such delay would retard the birth of the child. And in various parts of Sumatra, a woman herself in these circumstances is forbidden to stand at the door or on the top rung of the house ladder under pain of suffering hard labour for her imprudence in neglecting so elementary a precaution. Malays engaged in the search for camphor eat their food dry and take care not to pound their salt fine. The reason is that the camphor occurs in the form of small grains deposited in the cracks of the trunk of the camphor tree. Accordingly, it seems plain to the Malay that if, while seeking for camphor, he were to eat his salt finely ground, the camphor would be found also in fine grains, whereas by eating his salt coarse, he ensures that the grains of the camphor will also be large. Camphor hunters in Borneo use the leathery sheaf of the leaf stalk of the Penang palm as a plate for food, and during the whole of the expedition they will never wash the plate, for fear that the camphor might dissolve and disappear from the crevices of the tree. Apparently they think that to wash their plates would be to wash out the camphor crystals from the trees in which they are embedded. The chief product of some parts of Laos, a province of Siam, is lac, This is a resinous gum exuded by a red insect on the young branches of trees, to which the little creatures have to be attached by hand. All who engage in the business of gathering the gum abstain from washing themselves, and especially from cleansing their heads, lest by removing the parasites from their hair they should detach the other insects from the boughs. Again, a Blackfoot Indian who has set a trap for eagles and is watching it will not eat rosebuds on any account for he argues that if he did so and an eagle alighted near the trap the rosebuds in his own stomach would make the bird itch with the result that instead of swallowing the bait the eagle would merely sit and scratch himself following this train of thought the eagle hunter also refrains from using an awl when he is looking after his snares for surely if he were to scratch with an awl the eagles would scratch him the same disastrous consequence would follow if his wives and children at home, used an awl while he is out after eagles, and accordingly they are forbidden to handle the tool in his absence, for fear of putting him in bodily danger. Among the taboos observed by savages, none perhaps are more numerous or important than the prohibitions to eat certain foods, and of such prohibitions many are demonstrably derived from the law of similarity and are, accordingly, examples of negative magic. Just as the savage eats many plants or animals in order to acquire certain desirable qualities with which he believes them to be endowed, so he avoids eating many other animals and plants, lest he should acquire certain undesirable qualities with which he believes them to be infected. In eating the former, he practices positive magic. In abstaining from the latter, he practices negative magic. Many examples of such positive magic will meet us later on. Here I will give a few instances of such negative magic or taboo. For example, in Madagascar, soldiers are forbidden to eat a number of foods, lest, on the principle of homeopathic magic, they should be tainted by certain dangerous or undesirable properties which are supposed to inhere in these particular viands. Thus, they may not taste hedgehog, as it is feared that this animal, from its propensity of coiling up into a ball when alarmed, will impart a timid, shrinking disposition to those who partake of it. Again, no soldier should eat an ox's knee, lest, like an ox, he should become weak in the knees and unable to march. Further, the warrior should be careful to avoid partaking of a cock that has died fighting, or anything that has been speared to death and no male animal may on any account be killed in his house while he is away at the wars. For it seems obvious that if he were to eat a cock that had died fighting, he would himself be slain on the field of battle. If he were to partake of an animal that had been speared, he would be speared himself. If a male animal were killed in his house during his absence, he would himself be killed in like manner, and perhaps at the same instant." further the malagasy soldier must eschew kidneys because in the malagasy language the word for kidney is the same as that for shot so shot he would certainly be if he ate a kidney the reader may have observed that in some of the foregoing examples of taboos the magical influence is supposed to operate at considerable distances thus among the blackfoot indians the wives and children of an eagle hunter are forbidden to use an awl during his absence, lest the eagles should scratch the distant husband and father. And again, no male animal may be killed in the house of a Malagasy soldier, while he is away at the wars, lest the killing of the animal should entail the killing of the man. This belief in the sympathetic influence exerted on each other by persons or things at a distance is of the essence of magic whatever doubts science may entertain as to the possibility of action at a distance magic has none faith in telepathy is one of its first principles a modern advocate of the influence of mind upon mind at a distance would have no difficulty in convincing a savage the savage believed in it long ago and what is more he acted on his belief with a logical consistency such as his civilized brother in the faith has not yet so far as i am aware exhibited in his conduct for the savage is convinced not only that magical ceremonies affect persons and things afar off but that the simplest acts of daily life may do so too hence on important occasions the behaviour of friends and relations at a distance is often regulated by a more or less elaborate code of rules the neglect of which by the one set of persons would it is supposed entail misfortune or even death on the absent ones in particular when a party of men are out hunting or fighting their kinsfolk at home are often expected to do certain things or to abstain from doing certain things for the sake of ensuring the safety and success of the distant hunters or warriors i will now give some instances of this magical telepathy both in its positive and in its negative aspect In Laos, when an elephant hunter is starting for the chase, he warns his wife not to cut her hair or oil her body in his absence, for if she cut her hair, the elephant would burst the toils. If she oiled herself, it would slip through them. When a Dayak villager has turned out to hunt wild pigs in the jungle, the people who stay at home may not touch oil or water with their hands during the absence of their friends, for if they did so... The hunters would all be butter-fingered, and the prey would slip through their hands. Elephant hunters in East Africa believe that if their wives prove unfaithful in their absence, this gives the elephant power over his pursuer, who will accordingly be killed or severely wounded. Hence, if a hunter hears of his wife's misconduct, he abandons the chase and returns home. If a wagogo hunter is unsuccessful, or is attacked by a lion, he attributes it to his wife's misbehaviour at home and returns to her in great wrath while he is away hunting she may not let any one pass behind her or stand in front of her as she sits and she must lie on her face in bed the moxos indians of bolivia thought that if a hunter's wife was unfaithful to him in his absence he would be bitten by a serpent or a jaguar accordingly if such an accident happened to him it was sure to entail the punishment and often the death of the woman whether she was innocent or guilty an aleutian hunter of sea otters thinks that he cannot kill a single animal if during his absence from home his wife should be unfaithful or his sister unchaste the Witchal indians of mexico "'Treat as a demigod, a species of cactus, which throws the eater into a state of ecstasy. "'The plant does not grow in their country, and has to be fetched every year by men who make a "'journey of forty-three days for the purpose. Meanwhile the wives at home contribute to the "'safety of their absent husbands by never walking fast, much less running, while the men are on the road.' They also do their best to ensure the benefits which, in the shape of rain, good crops, and so forth, are expected to flow from the sacred mission. With this intention, they subject themselves to severe restrictions, like those imposed upon their husbands. During the whole of the time which elapses till the festival of the cactus is held, neither party washes except on certain occasions, and then only with water brought from the distant country where the holy plant grows. They also fast much, eat no salt, and are bound to strict continence. Anyone who breaks this law is punished with illness, and, moreover, jeopardizes the result which all are striving for. Health, luck, and life are to be gained by gathering the cactus, the gourd of the god of fire. But inasmuch as the pure fire cannot benefit the impure, men and women must not only remain chaste for the time being, but must also purge themselves from the taint of past sin hence four days after the men have started the women gather and confess to grandfather fire with what men they have been in love from childhood till now they may not omit a single one for if they did so the men would not find a single cactus so to refresh their memories each one prepares a string with as many knots as she has had lovers This she brings to the temple, and standing before the fire, she mentions aloud all the men she has scored on her string, name after name. Having ended her confession, she throws the string into the fire, and when the God has consumed it in his pure flame, her sins are forgiven her, and she departs in peace. From now on the women are averse even to letting men pass near them the cactus seekers themselves make in like manner a clean breast of all their frailties for every peccadillo they tie a knot on a string and after they have talked to all the five winds they deliver the rosary of their sins to the leader who burns it in the fire end of chapter 3 part 1 and the first part of chapter 3 part 2